0: invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews 13. Leaders in the faith. So throughout the whole of the book of Hebrews, we've been talking about faith. More recently, in Hebrews 11, into Hebrews 12, we have been compelled by a great cloud of witnesses to follow in their faith. Their examples, they help us. The Bible presents us, in this vein, timeless examples. Men and women who have gone through many of the same trials that we still face today, and we watch them as they overcome by faith, as they, uh, as they live by faith, as they make decisions by faith, and we learn and we grow. But by God's grace, it is not only distant examples of men and women, those that have gone before us, that we can look to in our quest for faith. By God's grace, and indeed by His design, we ought to be able to look to contemporary examples of the same. And that's what Paul is going to speak to today. Following contemporary faith, following leaders in the faith. You're there in Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 7 and 8 this evening. The Bible says this, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation, Jesus Christ the same, yesterday and today and forever. So let's talk about this together. The Bible says there in verse 7, remember them which have the rule over you who have spoken unto you the word of God. The verse begins with a command, and that command is to remember. And the object of this remembrance is to remember them that have the rule over you. And this is the first of three times in the, in, in, in this Hebrews chapter 13, in, in this context, where Paul will reference this group called them that have rule over you. Here in verse 7, the Bible tells them to remember those that rule over them. In verse 17, they'll be called to obey those that have rule over them. And then finally in verse 24, they'll be called to salute those that have rule over them. And notice this word, have the rule over you. I give you uh, the, the Greek term there is that second word on the slide. It means by definition to go before, to lead, to command, to account or to esteem. Now, this word is actually quite a broad word. It's not the normal word for leader. It's not a word for king. It's not a word for lord. It's certainly not the word for pastor or for bishop or for elder. It is a word which means to go before, to lead or to esteem, to account something. And this is an interesting word here. In the other epistles, without exception, the word does, is not translated leader. It is translated by by the concept of a mindset, to account for something or to esteem something to be true. Only here in Hebrews and then in the narratives of the Gospels and Acts do we see this idea of someone who you might follow or someone who goes before you. And what all of these ideas, both the the accounting and the steaming, the mindset, the, the going before, all of these things have in common is that first definition, to go before. A leader especially a Christian leader in a Christian context, in the context of one who is a born-again believer and so a part of what the Bible calls the Church of Christ, those who are followers of Christ. A leader in this Christian context is not only in a position of decision-making, but rather of example. A leader is one who has gone before and who has shown you, as we'll see as we continue in the verse, by the fruit of their lives, the truth of their words. He has, as it were, gone to a place of faith prior to you, and so he can, by the fruit of his life, show you what a faith decision looks like, how to go about it, and what its results will be. And this is very much the flavor of the word as it relates to the definition of accounting or esteeming something to be true. To have gone before some decision or some consideration and then to have pre-decided that decision. Let me show you an example of where Paul uses this word, this same word that we have here. It's the Greek word hegeomai, which is neither here nor there, but where he uses this same word in another context and we, we can see how, how this is used. It's a familiar passage, Philippians chapter 3, Verses 7 and 8. And Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. The word that we're looking for here that's translated the same as in our context here, this idea of those who lead, is the word counted here in verse 7. So we read in Philippians 3, 7 and 8. But what things were gained to me, those I counted, there's our word. Loss for Christ, the same word, to go before, to lead, to command, to account, or to esteem. I counted loss for Christ, yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and here it is again, and do count them, esteem them, reckon them, go before them, but dung that I may win Christ. Paul speaks here of looking at the things which would have been gained to him in this world. Remember all of the things that could have been gained to him in the particular context and advantages of the Jewish faith. Circumcised the eighth day, the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of Pharisees, persecuted the church, blameless and according to the law. He had everything going for him. And he says that he had gone before those gains, that as he looked at those gains, he had pre-decided in his heart and his mind. And he assessed them that those things, if those things have to go away for Christ, then they must go away because Christ matters more. He predecided those things to be of no value for the sake of winning the true value, which is Christ. And this is the same word that we find in our context. And this is important because it sets the entire tone for how it is that Paul is presenting the nature of this leadership here. And that's where these ideas converge into this one word. In relation to a person, Paul speaks of one who goes before others into a manner of living and... Thus, they become an example. That's a leader, right? And then in relation to a mindset, Paul speaks of the thoughts and the decisions which have gone before a call to action so that when it's time to act, the decision has already been made about where my loyalties lie, and thus, there's no decision to be made. I simply do what is right. Same word, different contexts. But that's the idea. So we come back to verse 7 and Paul exhorts the listeners to remember, to recall to mind these leaders, these who are rulers over them, those who have gone before them in what way? And we see here in faith and in obedience. And this is where the King James translation of them which have rule over you really comes in. Recall in our morning message, excuse me, in the morning marriage series, which we're done with now, right? So it's in the past, but in our morning marriage series, recall that I taught you about how marriage is intended by God to be exclusive in nature, right? One man, one woman, and that's the exclusivity. And then we talk about for life and all of those other elements of a definition of marriage. And we talked about how the Bible doesn't actually speak to this directly, right? The one man, the exclusivity, the one man, one woman, except In one place. And we talked inferentially about how God likens himself to a bridegroom, and he likens his people to the bride, and there is a whole analogy of exclusivity there, so inferentially we can say exclusivity in marriage. Uh, we talked about how, in the Bible, even when we see situations of multiple wives, not only are there consequences to it, but we see that the first wife, that actual first wife, is regarded as somewhat as as uniquely special. There's an analogy of loyalty there, uh, and unique among the others. But there was one particular proof that I went to, and and as I gave you that proof. I said, this is most compelling. This is the one where we can actually draw from the scriptures one man and one woman. That polygamy, though we see it in the Bible, is not God's intent. That that God's intent is for one man and one woman. And I took you to 1 Timothy 3, where the New Testament teaches that bishops and deacons are commanded to be the husbands of one wife, if you recall that. And then I extended that principle to every Christian and said that by virtue of God's command to bishops and deacons that they must be the husband of one wife, we have biblical proof that all Christian men are expected to do the same. Why? The reason was because the New Testament presents pastors, bishops, deacons, it's the, uh, uh, not deacons, but pastor, bishop, elder, and deacon, two offices presents these men not as a superior class of men with unique expectations among believers, but rather as an exemplary class of men who have shown themselves faithful and so can show believers by their example what they ought to aspire to as well, right? Pastors are not a superior class of men. They are an exemplary class of men. And by exemplary, I don't mean, when we say something is exemplary, it means that it's really, really great. What I mean is they are the examples. They are ordained to be examples. They should not be ordained if they are not examples. And, and so we, we talked about that, right? And we went to 1 Peter chapter 5. The Bible says this, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3. The elders which are among you I exhort who am also an elder, and we see that word elder here, right? And a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God. And that word feed there is the word for pastor. So we see the the elder's duty is to pastor the flock of God, which is among you. And then he says taking oversight. That word taking oversight is the word bishop. So we find that bishop, elder, and pastor are all the same office, that the elders are to pastor the flock and bishop or oversee the flock. So they're all they're all the same office here. Taking oversight thereof, notice this, not by constraint, but willingly. We do not take oversight by constraint. I do not stand over you and compel you to listen to me. The design of the church is that you willingly submit yourself to spiritual authority. Not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Not that I might gain of you, but rather that I might serve you. And then finally, neither is being, and this is the operative part here, neither is being lords over God's heritage, but being ensamples, Older word for examples, to the flock. There it is. The elder bishop pastor, same office, is not called to lord himself over the people of God. I am not here to fleece the flock. I am not here to lord myself over the flock. I am not here to control the flock. I am here to lead the flock. That means be an example. To go before the flock into faith, and then compel the flock to follow along, to show them by example what obedience looks like, what faith looks like, what forgiveness looks like, its blessings, its sacrifices, its trials, its rewards, and then to exhort the flock to follow. And this is why the King James translators translate this them which have rule over you because they are further described as those who have spoken unto you the word of God. So these are their elders, right? These are their pastors. These are those who are speaking the word of God unto them and they are testifying the truths of God. They have met the qualifications of the bishop in 1 Timothy 3 and they are apt to teach and they are exemplary in character, not perfect, faithful. I'm going to say that several times in this message. Not perfect men, faithful men. Those who have met those qualifications. And so they are placed in a position of leadership within the church and they are faithful to the office that they have been given by God, which has been recognized by the church. And that recognition is through ordination so that the church acknowledges that that man has been faithful and that acknowledgement thus puts them in a place where they are now obligated to remember. And then subsequently, we'll talk about it in verse 17, submit. But they do that through a, a certain process here. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. Now, uh, but first I want to say this. As I, as I read through... What others thought. And I have a habit, from time to time, especially when, when there's something that's a little bit ambiguous, I do my study, I come to my conclusion, and then I go see what others thought. And I was surprised at how many people, when they spoke of this verse in commentaries, a relatively common theme among many people was that they believed the reference here of them that have rule over you was a reference to the founders of the church, kind of that first generation of people in the church who had died already for their faith, like, like the martyrs of that first generation of the church, the, the leaders of the advent of the church. And this was based upon the fact that the verb here, those who have spoken, it doesn't say who, is, who are speaking, but it says who have. Have spoken unto you is in the aorist tense, and the aorist tense is for those of, for my Tuesday night crowd a one-time past action, right? And, and so there's that uh, that that idea, or no, not one time. I'm sorry, sorry, a undefined past action. Um, and, and so they they do that. Well, uh, of course, those that know the Greek know that the aorist tense cannot be put into that small of a box, so it's not a very good argument. And that's one of the reasons why I don't agree. But the primary reason why I don't agree, and I want to mention this just because I saw it in so many commentaries that if you have done the study on this and you've read some commentaries, I think this would be a place where those commentaries would not do you great service. And, and, and be careful, of course, with commentaries. That's man's words, not God, right? Um, here's my reasons. Paul has already spoken of contemporary martyrs in Hebrews 11. Remember when we were studying Hebrews Hebrews 11. Those final words of the chapter, especially verse 37, said this. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. We cannot find many of those accounts in the Old Testament. Being sawn asunder and stoned to not not even really, as far as the the, the, the prophets of God, right? But if you read, say, Fox's Book of Martyrs, you can find a lot of that. Right? We know Stephen who had been stoned to death. We know Paul was stoned and left for dead. So it seems as though Paul has already covered contemporary martyrdoms in Hebrews 11. The exhortation in Hebrews 12 to follow the great cloud of witnesses into the faith would seem to include them. To that end, I see Hebrews 13, 7 is a fundamentally different in kind group of people, not the same. But more than that, we can't overlook the fact that this exact same word translated them which have rule over you is used in the same grammatical construction two more times in this chapter. And whereas we might be able to reason from verse 7 here that the call would be to follow departed leaders to remember them as those who have departed, it becomes far more natural and in the case of verse 24, necessary to believe them which have rule over you to be a reference to those who are still alive and ministering among them. So in verse 17, obey them that have the rule over you. Okay, you could still kind of say, yeah, you obey them, they're dead now, but you 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 follow in their footsteps. But it's getting harder to see that as something that's not contemporary, right? Something where these people are not among them. But then you get to verse 24, salute them that have rule over you. And we're not talking about dead people. You're not going and greeting dead people for Paul. Right? That, that's not how that works. So so unless Paul is doing something weird here where he's using the same word to talk about three di- or at least two different types of people, which is not really how you write a letter. It's not really how you communicate effectively. We would understand that this group that has rule over them in verse 7 is probably the same people that have rule over them in verse 17 and probably thus the same people that have rule over them in verse 24. And the people in verse 24 are most definitely alive and among them, which means we... Roll that back to verse 17, and we can probably safely and most accurately roll that back to verse 7 as well. I think that these people are those who are among them. And if we take that to its end, he's calling upon them not to overlook, not to forget, if I may put it this way, their contemporary examples. Don't be so appreciative of the men and the women who have gone before that you forget those that stand among you. So Paul says, whose faith follow, in verse 7, considering the end of their conversation. Now remember what the word conversation means in our King James Bibles. When we talk about having a conversation, I had a conversation with someone. The idea of having a conversation with someone means I talked and they talked and they talked and I talked. and, Or maybe not, maybe... I listened and they talked the whole time, or I talked and they listened the whole time, but we called it a conversation anyway for whatever reason. Um, but we, we talk about talking, right? But the word conversation in King James English is not Just talking. Talking can be a part of it, but it's about our deportment. It's our manner of living. It is how we present ourselves. It's our testimony, if you will. The sum total of how we live our lives before others is our conversation. So he doesn't say follow their words. He's not saying follow their words here or follow the end of their words. He's saying follow the end of their manner of living, their testimony. The sum total of how they live their lives in the eyes of others. Consider the fruit of the way these men have lived their lives. See, we have a problem in Christianity. I should say we have a problem in humanity, and Christians are just as susceptible to it as others. Someone lives before us in a general victory and success in their lives, and we see that victory and we see that success. Maybe this is a father whose children have turned out right. Maybe that's that man who has led many others to the Lord. Maybe it's the man who has found contentment in the midst of material lack. And we see these things and we admire these things and we recognize in those things the general, uh, um, the, the, the general principles of fruit, right? They have borne in their lives fruit. Definitive marks of faith. Not that he talks a good talk, but he walks a good walk. And we see this and we admire the results and then we go up and we say, how did you get those results? And he tells us what faith looks like. He tells us of the time that it took And the sacrifices made, the obedience, the submission, the humility, the love, the selflessness, all of those things that he had to set aside for the cross, all of those things that he had to do in order to secure God's results, all of the faith that he exercised and how he had to count all of these other things but loss, that he may win Christ and that he may see God's results in this area of his life. And we say, oh, well, yeah, I bet that worked for you. But, you know... I've got this idea and that idea and that idea. And we go find the guy that has those ideas. And yeah, maybe he's not, he's not quite up to par, but you know, he's got these really good ideas and, and he expresses them so eloquently. And yeah, maybe things didn't really turn out for him. That was bad luck. But he's got these great, great ideas, right? And, 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 and we don't follow. Humans are bad followers, And I did see in one of those commentaries it written this way. Few lessons are harder for the average Christian to learn than good following. And we'll talk more about this, what I mean by that and what I don't mean by that um, toward the end of this sermon. So hang on for that. But let's consider the whole verse together in light of this idea. Don't forget about, remember them which stand before you leading you. Those who have spoken to you the word of God in faithfulness and those whose lives are in alignment with what they have said. Those whose lives bear the marks of the fruit that proves that what they have said is accurate as it relates to the word of God. Follow their faith. So here's the chain of custody for a church as it relates to following the faith. The minister teaches the word of God to those who submit themselves to his teaching. Those who submit themselves to his teaching do so because he has been placed in the position of leadership in the church. He has been placed into a position of leadership in the church because the end of his conversation, because the marks of testimony in his life testify to a heart of determined faith. Not a perfect man, but a faithful man. And the church recognized he was a faithful man. And in that, in obedience to the scriptures, they recognized a faithful man and they elevated that faithful man to a position of leadership and example. And by virtue of the fact that they willingly elevated that man to a position of uh, of example and of leadership, they have thus placed themselves in a position where it is right for them to obey and submit to him as well as to remember him no man is no man deserves your loyalty obedience submission or remembrance by virtue of existing by virtue of a title but faithful men are worthy of being followed not because they're worthy but because they are exemplary because we would be fools not to follow in the footsteps of those who have shown themselves to be faithful. When you find a faithful man, remember that. Remember him. When you think of the men and women of Hebrews 11, the men and women of generations of the church who have been saved and uh, and who have served and who have obeyed and who have joined the ranks of Uh, of just men made perfect it was called in Hebrews 12 right remember them but don't remember them at the expense of the faithful men among you because those men it might even be a little bit easier to follow in their footsteps because they've lived in your culture they've lived in your times (coughs) they fought the battles recently they fought similar battles that you might be going through and if they bear the marks of faithfulness, follow. And why is their example just as good as any other? Why would a faithful man today be just as good as a Paul or a Peter or a Moses? Now, of course, we have different recognition of places where they exercise faith and the ways that the Lord used them. But why, why, why are, are all of those on a level plane? Well, that's verse 8. Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. Because Jesus hasn't changed, which means faith hasn't changed and its results haven't changed. If a man bears fruit, it's because he is faithful. The faith of Abel, the faith of Noah, the faith of Abraham, the faith of Joseph, the faith of David, the faith of Daniel, the faith of John the Baptist the faith of Stephen, the faith of Paul, the faith of a John Wycliffe, the faith of a Martin Luther, the faith of a George Mueller, the faith of a Hudson Taylor, the faith of a Jim elliot all bears witness to the same person, the same spirit, same Lord, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, did each of these men have flaws, problems, things that we disagree with in their theology? Absolutely. Don't follow all of that unless all of that produced the fruit that you're seeking. It did not. Their bad theology did not produce that fruit. So we don't follow those parts. Their failures were not what produced their fruits. Their faithfulness did. And they are an example. Cultures change, methods change, times change. But Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6 says, There's one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And that one is not a one of organization. That one is not a one of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of tradition. That one is not a one of ritual. That one is a one of spirit, of faith. There's only one faith. Because there's only one Lord. The marks of faith are always the same and the results of faith are always the same. Now, when I say the results of faith, I don't mean happy, healthy, wealthy, wise. The faith of one man, he is stoned. The faith of another man, he is sawn asunder. The faith of another man, he becomes one of the richest men in the East, Job. So we're not talking about the, the, the material results. We're talking about the fruit that's spiritual. The fruit of faith is God's results. The marks of faith are the same. The results of faith are the same. And if the church has done it right, then to follow Abraham's faith, if, let me say this again, and, and let, me, let me emphasize that front-loaded that front statement. If the church has done it right, if this church has done it right, To follow Abraham's faith is to follow Joseph's faith is to follow Daniel's faith is to follow Paul's faith is to follow Hudson Taylor's faith and is by God's grace to follow your pastor's faith. Now, if that makes you uncomfortable to hear, believe me, it's even more uncomfortable for me to say. I am not, and by God's, I'm not lotting myself in with those men on any sort of a level except for this fact that by God's grace, I will be faithful too. And if I'm not, then I shouldn't be up here. If those who we follow are all themselves following that faith, and if they have borne the fruit of that faith in their lives, then our contemporary examples bear a, a, should be just as followable, as rememberable, sorry for making up word, as historical ones. So let me apply. Point number one, and as I do this, I'm going to walk through a three-point chain of logic. I've already hit all the points of everything. I'm just going to kind of lay it out in a more systematic way so that you can think of it more personally. Point number one, those who are worth following are those whose lives bear the fruit of faith. Like I said, nobody is entitled to being followed in the faith. It is something that is borne out by faithfulness. Remember our memory verse for March? We're in April now, but our memory verse for March, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 18. It's only half of our memory verses for March, but it said, for not he that commendeth himself is approved, but whom the Lord commendeth, right? Doesn't matter who commends himself. There's no brownie points in heaven for a man who commends himself. You can throw pastor all sorts of parties and thank you pastor for being our pastor. None of that's going to mean a thing before the throne of God. We can have a celebration, cakes and whatever else. It's not going to matter. You can give me little plaques and trophies that I can put on my desk and hang on my wall and it's not going to matter before God unless I bear the fruit of faithfulness. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6, right? Without faith, it is impossible to please him. God comm- Who is it that the Lord commends? If it is only the, the, the commendable ones are only those who God commends, then who does God commend? He commends those who please Him, He commends the faithful. The marks of a God commended life are the marks of a man whose life bears the marks of faith and obedience. Psalm 37, 23 and 24. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. Identify people who follow God, not in word, but in deed. Not a man whose speech is ordered by the Lord, a man whose steps are ordered by the Lord. Who is a doer of the word, not a hearer only. For that man, James says, is a man who's deceiving his own self. So Jesus said, Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20, Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. Bad fruit is the idea there. Evil not always meaning wicked A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruit ye shall know them. And of course, the idea of hewn down and cast into the fire is an analogy as it relates to the tree. It's not an analogy as it relates directly to heaven and hell here. That is not Jesus' teaching. Jesus is teaching about fruit and usefulness, fruit and faithfulness. You will not know the righteous man by his words. You will not know the righteous man by his knowledge. You will know the righteous man by his fruit, by the product of his life. And if he has the fruit, then if he is teaching, because not every righteous man, not every faithful man is a pastor, right? I am quite convinced that I am not the most faithful man in this room. But if he is a pastor, a faithful man, then when he speaks, it will be aligned. And to whatever extent he has that knowledge, it will also be aligned. It must be, because it bears out in his life. Now, the reason why I'm not talking about the faithful men that are outside of the pastorate is because we are talking about a passage which I am quite convinced is speaking about church leaders. So I'm keeping it in context, right? Those are the types of men who are worth following. That leads us to step number two. Step number one, those who are worth following are those whose lives bear the fruit of faith. Step number two, make men whose lives bear the fruit of faith leaders in the church. Not every faithful man will become a leader in the church, but every leader in the church had better be a faithful man. When Paul tells the church to remember them that have rule over them, to remember them that lead them, to remember those who have gone ahead of them, he is highlighting the fact that these Hebrews don't just have to look to history to see faith. They have it before their eyes. Among those who speak the word of God to them, whose lives bear the fruit of faith, those who are worthy of being followed. And this is why the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 are so very important. We cannot just smudge one of those out. We cannot just bypass those. They are essential because these men are supposed to be men that you can follow in the faith, follow their fruit. Consider with me Paul's words to the church of Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians 5. He says in verses 12 through 13, and we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. Notice Paul's beseeching here. Know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. The word here is to see them, to understand who they are by examination and experience. Observe them. Watch them. Why? Because they're going to be leading you. And if what you observe as the fruit of their life is not okay, don't follow. Because they're not bearing fruit. Examine their lives, prove and validate their faith. I can speak well. Great. I have passion. Wonderful. I'm very knowledgeable about the Bible. All the better. But does my life bear the fruit of faith? Not of perfection. Faith. Is it reflected in my wife? Is it reflected in my family? Is it reflected in my deportment? Is it reflected in my priorities? Because the men who are worth following are the men who, when you consider the end of their conversation, manifest the fruit of faith. Okay, now we come to the hard part. Part number three. First, those who are worth following are those whose lives bear the fruit of faith. Second, make men whose lives bear the fruit of faith leaders in the church. Third, willingly follow the leaders in the church. Now, if you skip parts one and two, then three is going to become really hairy because you're going to be following bad men and they're going to lead you into bad places and that's not good. But if you've done your due diligence in steps one and two, then step three is a reasonable step. It's still not an easy step for many, but it's a reasonable one. Now, Paul exhorts the believer to follow the faithful conversation of their leaders. Then in verse 17, he exhorts them to obey and submit themselves. So we'll talk more about that wing of everything the obe- obedience and submission part of following there when we get to verse 17. We just considered in 1 Thessalonians five. He tells the church, highly esteem those that labor among you for their work's sake. First Timothy chapter five verse seventeen. Paul says that the elders which rule well are worthy of a double honor. First Peter five tells the flock to submit to their elders in humility. So we see this, right? We see it all over the place. It's not just here, and we don't have to be. And it's, it's even in Hebrews chapter thirteen. It might feel a little ambiguous, but it's not ambiguous when we go to all of these other passages, right? All throughout the New Testament, we find these commands to honor, to respect, and to obey those who lead in the church. Now, as a human, you already struggle with this. By virtue of being a human, you struggle with that. add to that that you are Americans, and we really struggle with that, because Americans are not good at that. And then add to that the fact that we are uh, living an American life that is in the shadow of a faith tradition that has characteristically been separatist in nature, and we're really, really bad at that. And you and I are not naturally going to gravitate to the idea of following men in their example. I've even told you before, as it relates to books, I don't read books by men who are still alive, unless I have to find the dead ones because they've already proven themselves. That's kind of my example. If I have to read a book by someone that's alive, fine. But like if I can get something similar in a book by someone who's dead and and, and whose life bore fruit throughout his life, now I'm going to I'm going to go there first because I I can trust that more. But that being said, God's people are led by faithful men of this generation, not of generations gone by. Those generations are an example, a cloud of witnesses for us to follow in their footsteps. They're a template, they're an encouragement, but God has designed the church to be led by men in the church. So we aren't naturally going to gravitate to the idea of following men in their example of listening to their advice and their admonitions and their warnings, especially when they're telling you to do things you don't want to hear. But listen carefully. I said this already. If you don't follow faithful men, and I'm talking about church leaders, but we can broaden that to faithful men, whatever that might mean, you are a fool. You're a fool if you don't follow their example of faith, if you don't allow it to be authoritative in your life. Furthermore, As it relates to leaders in the church, if the church has done its due diligence, then Hebrews 13, verse 7 says you're disobedient as well. To him, to the Lord, right? If the church has not made a mistake, if it has done its due diligence to hold the qualifications of the minister in 1 Timothy 3, if you have done your due diligence to know the men who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and you've done your due diligence to know them, then you need to, you must position your heart to be ready and willing to listen, to follow, and we'll see when we get to Hebrews thirteen seventeen to obey. And as First Thessalonians says, esteem them highly in love. And as 1 Timothy five seventeen says, to count them worthy of double honor. And if you're unwilling to follow that a faithful man's example let me put it this way if you're willing to unfollow uh, if you're not willing to follow your pastor's example if you're unwilling to obey your pastor's exhortations if you're unwilling to give an overwhelming consideration it doesn't mean you have to do everything he says right Uh, we do not lord over God's heritage we're examples to the flock but if you're unwilling to give uh, true consideration to his advice his counsel his rebuke and his guidance it's only for one of two reasons first The fruit of his life is such that you deem that he is not qualified to speak to you in the manner of faith. And if that's the case, you should not be sitting under his teaching either. You cannot trust his teaching if his life does not bear fruit. Now, that doesn't mean pastor's going to be right about everything. I might be wrong. I'm, I'm certain I'm wrong. We'll get to heaven. We'll find out I'm wrong in certain areas of my teaching, preaching, interpretation, whatever it might be. Because I'm not a perfect man. I'm trying to be a faithful man. But the man who is not faithful has nothing to offer you before the Lord. Yeah, but he's really knowledgeable and and, and he's got all of these insights. The man who is not faithful has nothing to offer you of value before the Lord. He might give you some good history that you can carry back into the Bible and learn some stuff. He might give you some interesting insights into the Greek language that you could carry back into the Bible and learn some stuff, but the Spirit will not work through him. The Spirit might take things that he says and work through you to apply things, but the Spirit can't work through him because he is not a faithful man. And of course, in a a church situation, if the church is in that whole boat, that man needs to get out of that pulpit. He needs to be gone. Second, So the first reason why uh, you would not regard a pastor is because he is not a faithful man. The second reason is because you're hard-hearted, proud, or selfish. You're treating your pastor like an object for your compartmentalized consumption, denying your pastor the benefits of his office while gleaning from him the pieces that you deem are worthy of your time and effort. You come, you eat, you leave, right? Right? Just give me what you're going to give me, and I'm out of here before you can help. Me, before you can, uh, before you can uh, insert yourself into my life. This denies the pastor what is rightfully his by virtue of the fact that the church identified and ordained him to that position. And if he if he does not, if he ought not be there, then get him out of there. I know I'm speaking in the third person here. Let me, just, let me just make this personal. If I ought not be here, get me out of here. But if I ought to be here, don't deny me the benefits, the privileges, and the responsibility of my office. I don't take it lightly. Don't lightly esteem me. And if you will answer, and, and, and to the degree that each one of us does our part, we will answer before the Lord, right? That's much of what Hebrews says. If a man whose life is worthy to follow so that the church ordains him to leadership, a man approved of God, a man whose life and testimony bears the fruit of faith, again, take note, I'm not talking about a man who has been elevated to ministry, but a man whose life upon examination does not bear the fruit of faith. I'm talking about a man, nor am I talking about the random minister who comes and you don't know anything about him and he looks like a nice guy and he seems like a nice guy, so you're going to give him uh, the, the, the props that are due unto him. I'm not talking about those kinds of men. You don't, the, the first man does not bear fruit. The second man is not known of you. But when you have a man who is known of you and who bears fruit... Upon examination, if such a man has invested himself into you before the Lord in whatever capacity, Paul tells as a minister of, uh, of Jesus Christ, he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 4, uh, 4, 2, excuse me, rebuke, uh, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. That's the job of the minister. If such a man has been faithful to you in reproving, rebuking, or exhorting you, don't take it lightly. Whether that's your pastor, whether that's your faithful father, whether that's your faithful, um, uh, a faithful mentor, whether that's a, a fa- if he is a faithful man, he has borne that fruit, the fruit of faith in his life. Don't take it lightly, and if he has been ordained, really don't take it lightly because you put me here, and you shouldn't have done it if you weren't willing to listen. And if you reject it, if you refuse it, if you belittle it, if you disregard it, then you're in the territory of disobedience and judgment. And if I'm not faithful, then I'm in that territory. And so we each do our part and we become what the church is supposed to be. And so God help us. Three points. Those who are worth following are those whose lives bear the fruit of faith. Make men whose lives bear the fruit of faith leaders in the church Willingly follow the leaders in the church. And with this, by God's grace, we obey Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Remember them which have rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end, the result of their conversation. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota.